Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes, Client Portfolio Manager. With me today is Scott Weber, Senior Portfolio Manager, as well as Chartered Financial Analyst. Scott has been with the firm since 2003. So here we are uh, a couple months in on the Trump rally. What are your thoughts on, on how sustainable this run is and what do investors need to see from companies to continue so to support the valuations that have, that have come out? The latter portion of that's the better question. You need earnings growth, full stop. You've had liquidity-driven rally really for years now and with, with, a, with a punctuation mark uh, driven, uh, some might say by hope, others would say that's a four-letter word, um, but, but it has the hallmark fingerprint look and feel of short covering. Uh, with that in mind, as distinguished from a fundamentally driven rally, uh, it's probably less likely to extend. Now, we both know that uh, it can extend beyond what anyone might feel is logical. Uh, and so, you know, I don't have a better crystal ball than anyone else with respect to how long that goes. But in as much as the narrative has shifted from monetary to physical liquidity to, to earnings growth, that is an inherently uh, difficult transition to make, to say the very least of it. The downside is I think that the rally itself um, is, if, if sustained by momentum, is a weaker quality. By the same token, as an active manager, the seeds of hope are sown in that um, you, you find valuation disparity in the disruptions that often follow. So, so I was reading a statistic uh, a week or so ago, and it said that the S&P is up 98% over the last five years, and uh, about two-thirds of that, 66% of that return has come from PE expansion. And, and this really is, is playing into what you're describing, right? How much further can that index be aired up off of sentiment or flow? And the question that you pose is the million-dollar question. How long does that go on? Um, I would tell you that there are some fundamental underpinnings in the form of lower costs of capital, uh, ample liquidity. Um, you know, we, we, we can debate about the influence of the Fed, but clearly they're not really they – haven't, they haven't been in the way, so to speak – so um, the logical extent is, is anyone's guess. The ultimate uh, path, you know, if, if history is a guide, um, might ironically be manifest in that whereas everyone's expecting economic growth to take off and really take, and, and fundamentals, uh, specifically earnings growth as an example, to take leadership and drive the market higher, um, it would be... Uh, at least academically entertaining to see the economic aspects of that hope trade manifest themselves and the economics in the form of market performance not follow suit, largely because it may have already done so. So uh, let's talk about uh, a topic that's that's you know very pertinent today, the shift from from active to passive or really just this this mass entry into passive investments. Uh, why, why, in your opinion, has it happened? Uh, how big of a deal is it? And where do you see this this trend going? Um, and then I guess lastly, you know, has it affected the way that you are managing assets today? So uh, four big questions in one there. Um, with respect to, is it a big deal? To anyone listening to this podcast, it's obviously a big deal. Um, the reason that it may have happened largely can be uh, liquidity fueled. I mean, you can see where 
at, at the later stages, particularly peakish stages of market behaviors where, the, where passive will win, uh, and, and it's the inflections and the choppier points that follow where passive will have a harder time, as cited before, largely because it's momentum-driven and, and not fundamentally driven, and therefore, to, to quote my good friend, lacking in price discovery. Whether or not it affects the way von Nelson invests, I won't say that we're bending or swaying in any way, shape, or form to those trends. Um, I, I think that we, you know, if you'll pardon the cheap joke, we were country when country wasn't cool. This is the way we've done things. This is the way we'll continue to do things. And it will evolve as we hopefully get better and continue to improve over time. But we're not suddenly going to be a momentum shop and we're not suddenly going to launch ETFs. What we do is rooted in fundamentals, rooted in value, and, and, and that won't soon change. And so if, if you look at at least what's publicly available in the form of mutual fund data, the majority of high active share was evident in active managers mostly in the past. And as Stylebox and other disincentives for straying from your mandate, particularly if it's cap delineated, as, as those became more um, pronounced, you might say, in the allocation decision, largely meaning, as an example, you get fired if you lost money and you didn't neatly fit into your bucket, the, the pool of active managers in aggregate has evolved into a pool of closet indexers such that, you know, if, if, if in the 80s the average active fund had active share north of, let's call it three quarters, just to throw a rough number out there. Today, less than a fifth of active managers have active share north of 80%. And that, that just tells you that the incentive structures in their industry have governed them towards that really retrenchment. Now, when we set out uh, with, with our investing process, the way we invested using fundamental, uh, you know, specific yardsticks and, and targeted returns were not things that were common to the narrative of allocating capital in, in, you know, in the mutual fund space here. And so really, we, the market didn't know how to greet us. Uh, we stuck to our knitting and, and were able to put uh, a few good years uh, of performance on. And, and people came around to our, our way of investing. And, and our hope is that that continues to, to happen. And so whereas today you see that uh, roughly 60% of the assets, at least in, in equity funds, and that's a rough figure, are, are still in active sleeves as opposed to passive. There's plenty of capacity for continued migration towards passive. Um, fortunately for Vaughn Nelson, and specifically as it pertains to our select fund, we, while we have lost some accounts to people going passive, I'm happy to say, We've lost more accounts to people going passive than to people who are dissatisfied with our performance. We're actually growing share, in, in my opinion, uh, based on anecdotal evidence, from people firing their 2 and 20 hedge funds where they may not have fully uh, performed the expectation. They've, maybe they've underperformed the, the hedge fund index, but also uh, they've underperformed the S&P. And so net-net, we've been able to grow assets through that passive migration and I think it's largely because we tend to be a high active share manager with reasonable tracking error and, you know, not an outlandish beta. And, and, you, and you're hitting on one of the fundamental issues that has uh, 
made active investing as a whole and in general really difficult for investors to stomach over the last couple of years, right? It is the, uh, the notion that buying an active manager doesn't always mean you're truly getting active management. And I've, you know, we've, we've read uh, as, as a calendar year has flipped, um, perhaps 2017 is the year of active. You know, in, in what do you see out there? What do active managers do? True active managers, active managers with active share north of 80, right? What do they need to do in terms of changing their approach to uh, gather folks' confidence once, one, once again to, to invest in them? Yeah, I, I don't think they should change. I think that, that changing to, in, to, to the whim of the, the, the narrative in the press is, at least for us, that, doesn't, that shoe doesn't fit. It's not an issue of redemption in many cases. It's an, it's an issue of recognition, such that while the headwinds to active have been fierce, it may soon be that those you know, prevailing uh, winds shift. And the last thing you want to do is bend to the last five years as the narrative, as you pass the inflection point. So I would tell you that we're not changing. We're continuing to do as we've done. There are plenty of active managers out there who are running closet index funds who should shift, but that's not a bend to the narrative. That's a realignment with what their their goal really should be, and, and that's the market speaking to them, right? I, I think so. That, that that's exactly it, right? You either are, you become a low cost passive provider, or you become a true active manager, and, and there's really very little room for anyone who sits between. That's right. And the light that the industry's shining on the issue is what's forcing that change today. All right, let's let's move forward here and and talk a little bit about some some policy shifts. So. You know, here in, in, in the U.S., uh, with the new administration, there is uh, an expectancy that we're going to see a, a large shift from monetary policy to fiscal. Um, what do you think that's going to play out? How, how do you believe that's going to play out here in the economy at, at large? Uh, it's a two-part question. The first is the economy. The second is the stock market. And the second part's happened. The first hasn't. We have a disruptive transition to go through, without question. Uh, a shifting regime with respect to how capital is allocated and, 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 and this narrative shift that all of a sudden if we say they're shovel-ready projects that need to get done, we should reward those businesses with higher multiples, which suggests they've already earned that, is kind of strikingly similar to 08, right? <laughs> you know, in, in that, or I guess, 08, 09 election time period. So with that in mind, I would say that the spoils of that effort have been partly harvested by market appreciation for many of those businesses. The burden of proof is on policymakers to execute those promises. That, like any process that happens through Washington, is fraught with error and shift, and, and to say nothing of the possibility for unintended consequences. And so we, we have not rushed to change. We have not rushed to... Um, to, to accommodate some you know, shovel-ready mindset with respect to fiscal uh, spending. By the same token, some of the risks with respect to the shift in healthcare policy and, and perhaps taxation, if, if there is an element of risk that may be discounted, we, we, we can arguably be accused of responding to that too quickly, um, particularly in the healthcare space. Um, maybe we were too conservative in anticipating some of that change. but. I think that the stock market has discounted a good bit of what uh, the, you know, the, the supporters, that view, have hoped for. And I think that uh, the economy 
will take time, A, to see the capital allocated in Washington, B, to see it deployed, and C, to see that actually flow through. Right. So, so off of that, you know, tell, tell me a little bit what you're looking for in a business, uh, talking about the, the really the fundamental elements of what a individual position would, the characteristics of that position would need to uh, have as in terms of attributes before it'd be considered into, inside the portfolio. A business that's going to be attractive to Vaughn Nelson is going to really fit one of three return paradigms. Uh, and so in as much as, you know, there, the fundamental elements of return stem from either growth, repricing, or yield, you, you might rightly surmise that that's the way we think about the world in these three. And we, um, we, we originally called them buckets, and now we call them undervalued growth, undervalued assets, and undervalued dividend. And, and what we mean by each of these are, in the case of undervalued growth, your return should come from incrementally improving returns at the business. And, and by that, I mean, obviously, your return exceeds the cost of capital. But as that management has capital internally to redeploy, it, it yields improving returns as opposed to declining returns. Uh, the undervalued asset can be uh, an anticipation of a structural shift in the competitive dynamic or an internal catalyst that may not be fully recognized by the market. But in any case, the market is repricing the asset. And in my mind, the difference between those first two is the first can be a bit more perennial. The second is almost like a bond maturing. Once, once that catalyst has been achieved, once the, the, the asset has been repriced, by definition, you've made your return. And in each of those, not, not to go too wonkish, but the concept of potential energy from physics is ever present. I, I believe fully that as you're evaluating a business, you can identify the, the mechanism in which you hope to achieve your return at the outset as opposed to when you sell it. The third category is the undervalued dividend. And in today's pricing environment and with our return criteria, we have a lot fewer of these available to us. But in this bucket, uh, the preponderance of your return is anticipated to come from return of capital as opposed to return on capital, whether it be a structural situation like a REIT or a business with large increments of capital deployment where management distributes surplus capital and when the large investment needs to be made, they rely upon external capital to do so. Um, the allocation, incidentally, across these three buckets is residual. It's said differently, it comes from the opportunity set that the market presents us. So we don't start a day saying we need more undervalued growth. At the moment, we happen to have the majority of the portfolio in that category. Um, we obviously are evaluating stocks in each of the three. But here again, it is a framework or a discipline um, which allows us to think and, and really at a very elemental sense say, here's how we expect to achieve our return. And failing one of these three tests, in other words, there's not a fourth category. Uh, if, if, if we're not going to be able to identify the mechanism of return in one of these three ways, then it probably is not going to be something that's going to work out for us. And, and another thing I would add to this is we have, uh, uh, we've referred to this as kind of a touchstone, kind of the, the Rosetta Stone of our philosophy, if you will. Well, great, Scott. Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate you joining us here. Important information. The analysis and opinions referenced herein represent the subjective views of Daniel Hughes and Scott Weber as of February 15, 2017. They are subject to change at any time based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. 
Any reference to specific securities, sectors, or markets within this material does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation or an offer to buy or to sell any security or an offer of services. This communication is for information only and is intended for investment professional use only. This material may not be redistributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Although Natixis Global Asset Management believes the information provided in this material to be reliable, it does not guarantee the accuracy, adequacy, or completeness of such information. Provided by NGAM Distribution LP, 399 Boylston Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02116. For investment professional use only. Job Pod 990317. Expires 22818.